I'm Joe Gaines, your MC, and without any further ado, let me introduce my man and yours, Mr. Swing, Eddie Palmieri, and Pala Ocha Tambo. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on a Frop Up Worldwide from PRX with my good buddy, Ned Sublet at your service. This edition, the New York sound of Latin music. How the music of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and beyond became reinvented in the great multicultural music city of New York. Now, you know we like to start out with the good tune. To set the tone for the discourse to come. How about Ray Barreto?
from 1973, Rebareto. With Indestructible, Indestructible, recorded after several members of his band split to form the group Tipica 73. This giant of a man was sending a message, I am and we are indestructible. Fania Records always had great album covers, and this one by Izzy Sanabria showed Ray opening his jacket to reveal a Superman suit beneath. I'm Georges Collinet. And I'm Ned Sublet. On Afropop Worldwide with the New York Sound of Latin Music. The New York Latin music back in the day was largely based on Cuban music, of course, and much of it was played by Puerto Ricans, who formed the largest Latin population in the city. But it's also Dominican, Panamanian, Colombian, Mexican, Jewish. And even cowboy, right, Ned? I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and the social and material conditions are different in New York than they are on the islands, of course. So now it's time to bring on stage our special guest, scholar and music programmer, whose new book was the inspiration for our show today, Dr. Ben Lapidus. That's L-A-P-I-D-U-S. Ben's a professor at John Jay College in Manhattan and author of New York and the International Sound of Latin Music, 1940 through 1990. He's a native New Yorker who's been a working musician on the scene for decades. He plays the tres and has made a number of albums under the name Sonido Isleño. He's a leading expert on the Cuban music form called Changui. And he's a New Yorker born and raised. Ben, welcome to Afropop Worldwide. It's an honor to be here. I love Afropop Worldwide. Well, you know that over the decades we've played a lot of the big three mambo orchestras, Machito and his Afro-Cubans, Tito Puente, Tito Rodriguez... People generally know the big five salsa band leaders, Johnny Pacheco, Ray Barreto, Eddie Palmieri, Larry Harlow, Willie Colon. But beyond those celebrated figures, there was a whole world of people who you might never know about if you weren't on the scene. And yet, they were crucial to how Latin music came to exist in New York the way it did with its own New York flavor. Absolutely, there was an entire musical ecosystem filled with band leaders, venues, dancers, promotional outlets, teachers who taught these musicians their craft, as well as people who built the instruments that they played. And it was all throughout the five boroughs, and I would also add New Jersey into the mix. There's tons of musical evidence that points to this kind of fluidity between you know, Cuban music, Puerto Rican music, Dominican music, and jazz that was happening right here in New York in the five boroughs and beyond the immediate greater tri-state area. And, you know, even Cubans and people from Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic coming to the United States to perform. So it really was happening pre the big three, during the big five, and beyond, you know, into the 70s. 
look up the newspaper postings for dances and for events that were happening in local papers, it's absolutely astounding. You have advertisements from the Bronx through the five boroughs of just any kind of musical activity. Um, so it really was far beyond the Palladium. I know everyone looks at the Palladium as this focus point, but there were really so many things happening way beyond that in the Bronx, in Brooklyn. Could you tell us about how your own background informs your work? Well, we're here in Brooklyn, which is kind of where it all began before I was even born. Both sides of my family, my parents' parents uh, came here, settled in Brooklyn. And my father's mother was a musician. My father played accordion and piano here in the city and in Brooklyn, little clubs and venues, and also in the famous Catskill Latin scene as well. So for me, this has a lot to do with the book because when I moved to Manhattan in the 80s, having already been exposed somewhat to Latin music and other things like jazz through my uh, family, I was surrounded, if you will, by some of the legends of this music who in high school were very generous and kind of took me under their wing. And from that point on, in addition to studying and performing with a lot of greats of this music, I kind of would ask questions as any person in their right mind should do when they're afforded such an opportunity. How did you learn how to play this music? Who taught you? What were the places you hung out? All the kind of basic things that you would ask somebody when somebody would perhaps be willing to talk to you and give you that information. Being around all these great musicians and hearing of this oral history and then trying to back up a lot of the oral history with archival research is really what made the book come about. I was particularly appreciative that you devoted an entire chapter of the book to Sonny Bravo. Why a whole chapter for this one musician? Who is Sonny Bravo? I feel that his story parallels so much of what happens in this book, but also so much of the history of the music in New York City. First of all, his grandparents moved from Cuba to the Tampa area where his parents were born and married. And then they were up here in New York when Sonny was born. And he came from a musical family. He had uncles and a father who were all professional musicians. His father was the bass player for the Quarteto Cane and the Sexteto Cane and other Cane iterations. And the father would travel and he would travel with his mom all around the country. They lived in St. Louis. They lived in Miami. They lived in New York. They moved all over the place. He wound up staying in Miami as a, a child because the mom was just like, no more moving. But they would go all over the country playing Cuban music. And when you think about this, it's really incredible because we have, you know, this idea that, oh, there was Chano Pozo and Dizzy Gillespie in 1947. But here's these examples of people playing Cuban music as a first generation, you know, born in the United States, very much still attached to their language and culture and music and touring around the United States in the early times, you know, before Latin jazz or salsa, whatever you want to call it. So that's one thing. He has this family lineage. And then... Uh, when his father passes and he enters his father's band as the piano player, he then starts, you know, he's working with all these people and he touches bass with Tito Puente, he's working with Fajardo, he's working with everybody. He's he hanging out with Benny Moray in New Year's of 1959. They were hanging out in a hotel together. 
He's recording with Cortijo and Ismael Rivera. He's really everywhere with Willie Colon, you name it. And then when he finally starts this band with Johnny Rodriguez called Tipica 73, they use kind of a charanga repertoire, tunes that they all knew from playing with Jose Fajardo and, and other people. And they started to expand on it and have like kind of inside jokes and change the harmonies. He would always say, I'm not a jazz musician, but he had all these jazz colors in his playing and his writing. And as an arranger, he started writing charts for people. Like the arrangement Sonny Bravo wrote for Charlie Palmieri's hit, La Hija de Lola. Eventually, people not only want to hire him as a pianist, but they want him for his charts. When he has this band, Tipica 73, he basically writes charts and takes charts from other cutting-edge writers like Perico Ortiz and Jose Febles. And the band becomes this inter-ethnic juggernaut of salsa of you know cuban music of they play some merengue they do even bomba and they have great guests on their album and they develop a very unique very new york sound but the group broke up after their groundbreaking 1978 trip to cuba right after a thaw in relations under president carter made it possible for u.s citizens to go there they went down to Cuba and they recorded with, you know, Los Papines and they recorded with El Nino Rivera and Miguelito Cuni and Chapotin and they were hanging out with Fernando Alvarez and all of their heroes. It was really a gutsy move and the record is brilliant. The writing is brilliant and the energy is brilliant. Intercambio Cultural was the name. Cultural Exchange. And it's rooted in the fact that these guys, Tipica 73 and other musicians in New York, when they were on tour in Europe or South America, they would hang out with their Cuban counterparts. They would swap recordings, they would play with one another, they would you know, check each other on music, and they had a relationship. And Tipica 73 early on was name-checking on their recordings, like, shout out to my friends so-and-so in Cuba, thanks for hanging out with us, and writing it on the back of records, which was something that nobody had really done. And they were also recording songs by contemporary Cuban bands. was still considered, you know, kind of supporting the enemy, if you will. It was still considered uh, something taboo to go off to Cuba and record. And there were people who turned their back on him who had left Cuba, people like Celia Cruz, that, you know, were colleagues and were very upset by the fact that, you know, he would do this as a Cuban-American and that the other musicians would go along with it. So they were threatened that their performances would be ending in bloodshed and things like that. And, and eventually it cost them the band. And around 1983, they made one more record and then the band was done. Sonny and Johnny Rodriguez went to join Tito Puente's band. Uh, Carnario went off to do his thing.
The importance of Sonny Bravo is not only did he write incredible charts, he continued to write incredible charts for a lot of people. And during his time with Tito Puente, leaves a fantastic legacy of incredible solos and did all kinds of adventurous arranging stuff. Like, you know, you listen to his arrangement of Because, the Beatles song for Louis Ramirez, and he uses the harmony from John Coltrane's Giant Steps in a danzón. Just a very forward-thinking person, but at the same time, very grounded in the tradition. So he is affectionately known as sort of the clave police. If you have a chart and it crosses the clave or it jumps or there's a discrepancy, he'll be the first one to tell you that. And it's important. He's also interesting, like his cousin, Bobby Rodriguez, he taps his foot in clave while he plays the piano, which is a challenging thing. More about the clave later. We're talking with Ned Sublet and Dr. Ben Lapidus about the New York sound of Latin music on Afropop Worldwide. While we're talking about important figures in the New York scene, tell us about the Gonzalez brothers, Andy and Jerry. Andy and Jerry Gonzalez were two brilliant musicians from the Bronx. They were really into jazz. They were really into Latin music. Jerry went to high school performing arts, as did Andy. Andy's a bass player. Jerry played trumpet and congas. And the reason he played congas was apparently because... He had broken his leg at one point and picked up the drum while he was kind of laid up as a kid. When they were kids, they would go to, there was a, a theme park in the Bronx called Freedom Land, and they would sneak in there and go see like Tito Rodriguez play. I mean, they were so deep into this music and they loved this music. I think they loved the music more than anybody else that I really know. And they had like an intense listening salon in their house and a lot of people would come through their house and jam with them in the basement. Not just young folks that were their contemporaries, but also the older folks. And they did sort of these listening salons with Rene Lopez, who's an important educator, cultural activist and collector. And they would sit down and listen to these records and not talk and they would analyze them after they heard them and talk about them and sometimes Chocolate Armenteros would come by and tell them like who was on the record and then anytime they got a new record or a new recording or 78 they would dub it and share it with this crew of people that included like Nicky Marrero and Nelson Gonzalez and then through all the experiments you know these guys were playing with Eddie Palmieri they were playing with Dizzy Gillespie At one point, they were with Dizzy Gillespie, and there was no rhythm section other than a piano, Jerry on congas, and Andy on bass. There was no trap drummer for about like six or seven months. There's one record of that. Jerry Gonzalez's Fort Apache band, in which Andy Gonzalez was the bass player, was, to my mind, the landmark band for Latin jazz. I would agree with you, because... They could switch on a dime between Cuban rhythms, Puerto Rican rhythms, and jazz. And they had a telepathy and they had signals and musical things they would do to cue each other. And he was kind of like the quarterback in that because he was holding it down and he knew when to go where. And if Jerry did something, he knew how to go with it. I think what they were doing from the first recordings on was all based out of that experience in their house, those jam sessions and all that music, playing Miles Davis tunes using Chequerés, playing rumba, 
because they were rumberos playing Bud Powell tunes as a comparsa. It made sense to them because that was their experience. You know, they're very bicultural, very steeped in both worlds and proud of it and always moving ahead, always trying to be better at their craft. And those records will stand the test of time. And those records are, I think, probably the most important in terms of Latin jazz. So here's Jerry Gonzalez and Fort Apache Band live with Obatala, featuring the late Milton Cardona on vocals.
Jerry Gonzalez and the Fort Apache Band with Obatala on Afropop Worldwide. Today, the New York sound of Latin music. We're talking with Ben Lapidus about ideas in his new book, New York and the International Sound of Latin Music, 1940 to 1990. Well, you know, one of the big things I always noticed about New York Latin music, even when it's for dancing, It's how jazzy it is. All kinds of innovations were happening because of that contact. So this is really about the, how the sound of what might have been a Cuban-based genre really gets pushed into something completely different because of this jazz influence. Puerto Ricans have been engaged with jazz for a very, very long time, going way back to someone like Ralph Escudero, who was playing with Bessie Smith or any number of musicians, all the guys in the Harlem Hellfighters, like Rafael Hernandez. Moving forward, you know, Roger Ram Ramirez, Martin Rivera, people like Willie Rodriguez. There's a ton of Puerto Ricans who have been involved in jazz, and eventually that jazz sensibility gets into salsa or contemporary Latin dance music, Spanish-Caribbean dance music via arrangements. When you listen to the arrangements by people like Louis Cruz and Eddie Palmieri and Jose Febles, they really reflect this character of modern jazz. Think of Larry Harlow's Senor Sereno, the Mambo section. That could be out of you know, McCoy Tyner and John Coltrane. Same thing goes with Eddie Palmieri's uh, Palaocha Tambo. Same kind of thing, the pedal with the fourths and the fifths, or the using these chords that are coming out of Bud Powell-type voicings on the piano. And now it's because New York Latin musicians were hanging out when Bud Powell was playing. Powell's Un Poco Loco, he was playing opposite Tito Puente the whole week that he came up with that when they were over at Birdland. So the kind of cross-penetration across musical places was key. And then you had like places like the LaSalle Cafeteria in Midtown Manhattan, where musicians from the jazz world and the Latin world were hanging out and sharing things with each other. Bobby Rodriguez would ask something about major chords, minor chords, to bass players who were playing with Charlie Parker, like Major Holly, and then he would try to incorporate these chord changes into the recordings that he was on. who lived side by side with African Americans and heard the same musics in the street have been part of every movement in African American music in New York, from early jazz to doo-wop to hip-hop. But Puerto Ricans were not the only Latinos into jazz. More about that in a moment. Check out our website, afropop.org. This is the New York Sound of Latin Music. I'm Georges Collinet. And you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX.
We're talking to Dr. Ben Lapidus. Ben, what brought the Panamanian migration to New York? Panamanians underwent a fair amount of discrimination in their own country, particularly people of West Indian descent. There was a segregation system that was called the gold and silver system where they had separate hospitals, separate places to buy food, separate buses, separate schools until the 1970s. Now this began with the building of the Panama Canal, right? when the U.S. contractors imposed racially coded payroll categories. This was done to a number of minority communities, Jews, Indians from subcontinent of India, etc., and people from the West Indies. So a number of musicians left Panama. But what's so amazing about the Panamanian connection is that the education, you know, you had the Banda de Bomberos, which is the firefighters band. Policia, the police band, you had the municipal bands, then you had the hotel scene. Panama was a stop in the Circum Caribbean. You had Havana, you had San Juan, you had Santo Domingo, you had Port au Prince starting in the 1940s. Machito and Daniel Santos were performing in Port au Prince. Then you had Panama. And Panama had, you know, Stan Getz would go down, Shirley Scott would go down, Hazel Scott would go down, like any number of big time performers, and they would be backed up by Panamanian musicians. There was a whole jazz scene, there was a Cuban music scene, Peruchin would hang out in Panama, and when these musicians who were in that scene came to New York, there was like kind of nothing they couldn't do. They went on to Broadway, they went into salsa bands, mambo, they went into calypso groups, they did jazz. There was this ambiguity and also a kind of discrimination that they faced, this idea of you're not Latin, like what are you? You know, your last name is, you know, Washington, but you're from Panama? What's up with that? De la ciudad de Panama, nuestro primer trompeta, Victor Paz. Victor Paz, one of the best trumpet players in the world. He was the guy who would demonstrate Carmine Caruso's vaunted techniques on the trumpet. He played every all the exercises for him when he would do the teaching and played with everybody. You know, Liza Minnelli, he played on Broadway. There was nothing Victor Paz couldn't do. So Mauricio Smith, Victor Paz, Gene Jefferson, Frank Anderson, who's still alive now at 92, is going to be honored by the Panama Jazz Festival this year. Enid Lowe, Terry Pierce... I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I think what this points up is that in Cuba, you have Cubans playing in a band and everybody plays Cuban style. In Puerto Rico, everybody's Puerto Rican. You get to New York, and there's no such thing as a band that's all Cubans or all Puerto Ricans or all from any one place. Hardly ever. Can you make the gig? Are you good enough? Do you play with the appropriate swing? 
Do you have the vocabulary? You had these mixtures of different people in these bands together, and the idea was just to play the best music possible. And of course, the best-known Panamanian salsa star, Ruben Blades, right? Por la esquina del viejo barrio lo vi pasar Con el tumbao que tienen los guapos al caminar Las manos siempre en los bolsillos de su gabán Pa' que no sepan en cuál de ellas lleva el puñal Usa un sombrero de ala ancha de medio lado Y zapatillas por si hay problemas salir volado Lentes oscuros pa' que no sepan que está mirando Y un diente de oro que cuando ríe se ve brillando Como a tres cuadras de aquella esquina una mujer Va recorriendo la acera entera por quinta vez Y en un saguán entra y se da un trago para olvidar Que el día está flojo y no hay clientes para trabajar Ruben Blades, who reinvented himself in New York And if we're talking about influential populations in New York Latin music in the 1950s, a quarter of New York City's population was Jewish. Two populations who were hugely more represented in New York City than anywhere else in the country, Puerto Ricans and Jews. And because New York was the center of radio and early TV broadcasting, the influence these two populations had on New York music was transmitted everywhere. If you look back in time, there's advertisements Every type of Jewish organization was having Latin dances and competitions. Who could do the best frumba and who could do the best couples dancing. It's not something that just started in the 1950s with the Palladium. It goes much further back to that, to like the 1930s, if not earlier. Tell us about the Catskills scene. Yeah, the Catskills was a place where American Jewish families, a lot of them were immigrant families or first-generation Americans would go on weekends to kind of escape the city, go up to the Catskills, you know, it, was a, it wasn't too long of a ride, you go north of the city, and there were lots of little hotels and bungalow colonies, and everyone was interested in dancing to Cuban music, Latin music, Dominican music, all the great bands played up there, Tito Puente. Now we play the closing cha-cha-cha. songs named after the different hotels, Grossingers or the Pines or Browns. And all of the great band leaders hung out there when they weren't playing and would check each other out and would get into trouble and have fun. This is very different from like uh, 
the Hamptons type of a thing. This was a kind of a working class person's, middle class person's place to go and sort of enjoy themselves. And every night it was mambo and cha-cha-cha and merengue and boleros. And then you see the ads in the newspaper where they're saying, oh, you had a great time at the Sheldrake, so come back and meet all your friends from last summer at this nightclub. Tito Puente is going to be playing this night and so on and so forth. And there's tons of this. It's like years of ads in the New York Post and other newspapers, dance after dance with band after band. And they're all serious bands everywhere. Upper West Side, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, New Jersey, Staten Island. The Jewish community was very active as consumers of this music. I would also say disproportionately active as musicians, as producers, as engineers, as instrument builders. I mean, the list of musicians is huge, from people like Larry Harlow and Harvey Averne to instrument builders like Jay Barak and Martin Cohen. And then you have guys like Fred Weinberg and Irv Greenbaum and John Fausti who are recording all these bands. And then people like Jack Hook who are booking Tito Puente. And people like Pancho Cristal, the Cuban-Jewish impresario who was really interested in recording Cuban music. I think his real name was Morris Perlman. Morris Levy had recorded Patato and Totico and another bunch of artists like Lupe. And of course, in this connection, we have to mention the late Larry Harlow, who had the nickname El Judío Maravilloso, the Marvelous Jew, which was an ironic play on the nickname of his hero, Arsenio Rodriguez, El Ciego Maravilloso, the Marvelous Blind Man. Larry grew up with Latin music. His father played it. Yeah, his father was a band leader named Buddy, and, and he played. He was a house band at Latin Quarter. And I always think of one of the greatest examples is someone like Barry Rogers, who is like the definitive sound of the trombone in Latin music, Jewish guy from the Bronx. Polymath who transformed New York music through the power trombone sound he developed with Eddie Palmieri and who was a formative influence on Willie Colon's sound. You know, there's other guys in there too, like Mark Weinstein, who left the trombone for the flute, but Barry was really like the architect of that sound and hipped Eddie Palmieri to a lot of music and introduced him to Bob Bianco, who was one of his teachers. This magic moment so different and so new was like any other until I kiss you To say nothing of all the great Jewish songwriters who crossed over Latin from Broadway to the Brill Building. Hey, hold up, Ned. It's time to pay the bills. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. 
and from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Now, Ned, you're saying? Yes. Besides all those populations that we've talked about, to which we would have to add a new migration from Cuba after the Mariel boat lift of 1980, New York influenced the development of Latin music in other ways. One of them was changing methods of instrument construction. Percussion instruments began to be made of new materials and with different kinds of construction. A lot of people who started making instruments like congas and timbales and bongo, they were just repairing the instruments that were here at first. And then they started to make their own and they started to find design issues, problems with the actual instruction. How are you going to like deal with the hardware, how are you going to bend the wood, you know, these are one-person operations. And people like Jay Barak from Skin on Skin, who was here in Brooklyn, people like Martin Cohen, they were at the forefront of congas. And also you had Junior Tirado and someone like Cali Rivera, who was making cowbells right up on Ogden Avenue in the Bronx. Johnny Pacheco was interested in bells because he was working as a percussionist in a lot of studio things. And in terms of materials and changing design, that was, you know, experimentation motivated by, I think, you know, could we make something more sturdy or could we make it less susceptible to the elements or could we make it lighter? So a great example of that was Frank Mesa, who was a bass player, Puerto Rican bass player, and he was the guy behind Ecotone Congas, which are these fiberglass congas and he got the idea of using fiberglass from boat products. Ray Barreto played them. A lot of people were using those instruments. And when Martin Cohen started mass-producing his instruments, LP, Latin Percussion, that really dovetailed with education because he started to release a series of records that were kind of like music minus one for learning how to play the congas. So he had the instruments and he had the instruction with it. He wasn't a percussion. He just liked the music. He liked the percussion. And he was hanging around the clubs and trying to bug the musicians. And I can build that for you. I can fix that for you. And then eventually it, it became something else. And another new sound, which eventually found its way back to Cuba, the Ampeg Baby Bass, a solid-body, upright electric bass that had a timbre somewhere between an acoustic upright bass and a bass guitar. They weren't massively manufactured, and they were kind of hard to get, but they became the sound of salsa bass. I think they could only make a certain number, like six or eight a day, and then they started making the body out of this compound butylite, this plastic fiberglass compound, and then they could pump out like 30 bodies a day or more, I think. It's kind of a brittle material, but they have lasted through time. I remember Ruben Rodriguez had one that he played that had a bullet hole in it, so it looked like it survived that. It was it was pretty awesome. Hey, hey, wait a minute. A bullet hole? Yeah, I think supposedly the guy, you know, was in a club or was crossing the street and it went he bought it from somebody else, so we'll have to ask him to tell the story, but it was red and had a bullet hole that went right through it. So the body, I guess, was tough enough to take the bullet. But it was originally just these two brothers in Chicago, the Dopera brothers, and they had this kind of Orco base that was sort of a triangular and I've seen the original and it's definitely a weird looking instrument and 
When Ampeg bought the rights to it, the first thing they did was revamp the pickup. And then when they moved to the New York area in New Jersey and started the manufacturing, they were very smart and they kind of had like the beta testers of the instrument here. So you had all the people who did all the sort of uh, commercials and North American pop music and rock and stuff. But that sound, that tone really became the sound of salsa and the sound of Cuban music in New York and then later in the rest of the world you see people like Oscar de Leon playing Ampeg Baby Bass etc and it was Andy Gonzalez like figured out a particular string configuration so that he could get a particular sound on it Andy would always say this is the lowest drum in the ensemble the bass is the lowest drum in the ensemble so if there was a rumba or son or whatever that he conceived of it as a drum the way he played it it really lends itself to balance out you know the high pitch and the overtones of the bells the campana the timbal and the bongo <laughs> There's much else to talk about that's in your book if we had another hour, about interethnic collaborations and biculturalism, about music education in New York, about all the other populations from Latin America, about the importance of folkloric troops that both employed musicians and disseminated the roots of the national musics that were modernizing in New York, about family lineages that create musical dynasties, about the anticipated bass, and on and on. Hey, Ned, 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 what about the clave? Yes, thank you. Before time runs out, there's one really important thing we haven't talked about, what Ben calls the physics and metaphysics of clave. You've heard about clave, right? That two-bar rhythmic key that allows you to stack a polyrhythm. And there's a very important rule. Once the tune starts, you can't change the clave. It's a two-measure pattern with five beats. You know, you can think of it as a, how are you, I'm fine, or I'm fine, how are you? Some of the physical aspects would be, you know, somebody tapping their foot like Sonny Bravo or Bobby Rodriguez while they're playing, how, using the clave as a guide as how to phrase. The other thing is like this very deliberate upholding of the clave as something that it starts and it ends exactly as you started it. There's no place where you can jump and switch from one side of it to the other. So when you start on one, how are you? I'm fine. You have to go all the way to the end of the song and the phrasing has to move around it. Every instrument moves around it. So and musicians talk about that, that kind of metaphysical aspects of the clave and at least the people that i've talked to over the years have made reference to this have pointed out the mystery of it how the clave interacts with the music and how the musicians perceive it and where they have feel those moments i think of tension and release and swing and that is a concept that changes over time but here in new york this is really elevated to this position that is almost sacrosanct, like you do not mess around with this. And also the clave has one other important function. The dancers are on it. 
Yeah, the important thing about all of this innovation, whether it's musical innovation, technological innovation, innovation in arrangements, whatever the case may be, the band could not leave the audience in the dust. When the dancers are like, no way, I'm not into this, then that doesn't work. We have time for one more number. This is from 1971 by pianist Marcolino Diamond, born on the Lower East Side in 1950, so he was only 20, 21 when he recorded this. It's called Brujeria, which means witchcraft, but he's talking about African-derived religion. You can practically hear the scare quotes in Angel Canales' vocal around the word brujeria, like, you call it witchcraft, but I believe in it.
Marcolino Diamond from 1971 with Brujeria. Special thanks to our special guest, Dr. Ben Lapidus. Our website is afropop.org. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for world music productions, research, and production for this program by Net Sublet. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, including radio programs and our Afropop close-up series. And don't forget to join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. This program was recorded and mixed at the Tuning Lab in Brooklyn by David Gorin. Welcome back, David. Yeah. Additional engineering by GC, that's me, from the syncopated lair in Washington, D.C. Budding Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richmond, and I'm Georges Collinet.